The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Our passage this morning that Mike read has been called one of the most hotly debated sections of the entire Bible. Leon Morris says, there have been endless debates, some of them very bitter, over the way to understand this chapter. Another scholar refers to these ten short verses in Revelation 20 as, quote, a war zone. Now, I think that's a somewhat fitting description, because this passage really does, unfortunately, divide believers. And while there are many things about the millennium that Christians differ over, The battle line that keeps us apart begins with the question of what specifically John meant by the phrase a thousand years. The uh, popular millennial systems of our day present us with two options in answer to this question. A, the thousand years is a literal 1,000 year period of time. This is the approach of premillennialism and old school postmillennialism. B, the thousand years of Revelation 20, is symbolic of a much, of a much longer period of time. This is the approach of uh, amillennialism and modern postmillennialism. So, which view is correct? Is it a literal 1,000-year period, or is the phrase really a massive understatement for a period of time that's much longer than a literal 1,000 years? My uh, own answer to this question is C, none of the above. Uh, (laughs) Rather than choosing one side or the other in this war zone, as it's been called, I'd like to suggest that this is one of those wars in which both sides are wrong. The question I'd like to ask this morning is, what if neither conventional approach to the time length of the the millennium is right to begin with? What if there's another choice that's rarely even been considered? Another way to look at the thousand years of Revelation 20. What if there's a third option? An option that better comports with Revelation's own time statements in particular and the Bible's own overall usage of large numbers in general. To even begin to think about such a possibility is difficult because we're accustomed to approaching the text, you know, with the modern systems floating around in the back of our heads. We tend to forget that the original recipients of John's letter would have never heard of pre, post, or ah, ah-millennialism. With this in mind, I'd I'd like us to place ourselves in their shoes and imagine we're hearing these words for the very first time. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. As an original recipient of the letter, would you even begin to imagine that the prophecy you're hearing concerns itself with events that would take place in the far distant future, thousands of years after you've passed away? This seems unlikely. The events were to take place shortly. In fact, it says they must 
take place shortly. David Bentley Hart, in his very literal translation of the Bible, renders the passage this way. The things which must occur extremely soon. This sets the tone for the entire book and all the prophecies it contains. Furthermore, these time statements in the opening words of the prophecy are repeated for us in the closing words of the prophecy in the final chapter. Revelation 22.6 reiterates that the events spoken of must take place shortly. In 22.7, John repeats the fact that Jesus is coming quickly. And in 22.10, it is re-emphasized that the time is near. What John says in the early chapters, then, is echoed in the final chapter. The repetition of these time statements brackets the prophecy like bookends, and it's difficult to see any textual justification for removing any portion of the prophecy from this bookshelf, so to speak. And this includes the events that conclude and close the millennium. Excuse me. The loosing of Satan to once again deceive the nations. The battle of Gog and Magog. Fire coming down from heaven to consume God's enemies. The final judgment and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. These are all things which must occur extremely soon in the first century. This is all strengthened by the words of Revelation 119, which reads, Write the things which you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are about to happen after these things. Joseph M. Vincent puts it well when he says, If this period of time, the millennium, is supposed to last for a very long period of time, thousands of years or more, Yet all of the things in the book were to be fulfilled very soon, including the judgment and the new creation. How could the millennium extend beyond John's day in the immediate future? Vincent's conclusion is hard to ignore if we take the time text seriously. Therein lies the problem. Are we taking them seriously? Sadly, Many today have more or less made a joke. Okay, sorry about the slide thing, but sadly, many today have more or less made a joke out of what these words mean. For example, with regard to Yeshua coming quickly, you'll often hear that this is not a chronological indicator telling the reader when the Lord will return, but a qualitative indicator describing how. He will return. In other words, in other words, the events of the Lord's return will happen really fast whenever they finally do begin to take place. Amazingly, Acts 22.18 is often used as an example to justify this approach. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. In this passage, Yeshua is telling Paul, get out of Jerusalem and get out now. He's clearly not telling him, go ahead and stay in Jerusalem as long as you want. Just make sure you move really fast 
once you finally do decide to leave. The urgency of the moment is obviously what's at stake in this passage. And it's really a distinction without a difference when you try and parse the how of the action with the when of the action. Furthermore, if this interpretation is correct and Yeshua's coming quickly only refers to the how of the action and not the when of the action, what possible comfort would this have been for the suffering and persecuted Christians in the first century? Don't worry. Relief is coming. It's over 2,000 years away, but when it finally does come, long after you're dead and gone, things will finally begin to move really fast. Rather than comforting them, this does the opposite. It actually mocks their situation if you really stop to think about it. Now, attempts to deal with the word near suffer similar distortions of meaning. For example, Vern Poitras recognizes the fact that Revelation 1.3 and 22.10 are like bookends in closing the whole of the prophecy of Revelation. The fulfillment of everything, not just a part, is near. So far, so good. And I saw Mike nodding his head, so I know he knows this quote. Unfortunately, however, Poitras sees this nearness of time in terms of a carnival. Think of a carnival, he says. People using a sledgehammer try to propel a weight to hit the bell at the top. The rising of the weight is like the, like the rising of persecution and antichrist activity. The weight gets near to the top, that is, near to the second coming. It may rise and fall several times before somebody finally succeeds in ringing the bell. Likewise, there may be many crises before the end, and each is nearer to the second coming. Uh, While this is clever and ingenious, it's doubtful that John's original readers would have thought of a carnival (laughs) when John said the time is near. More to the point, this just isn't how the word is used in Scripture. In the Gospels, for example, when it says something like, you know, the Passover was near. It doesn't mean every generation gets nearer and nearer to the Passover as time goes on. It means the Passover was right around the corner. Consequently, Christ's coming was right around the corner. The carnival analogy doesn't work, obviously. So... Other writers try other things uh, to come up with different ways to get around the time text. And I'm not sure which approach is worse here, but Stephen Witsit, for example, completely abandons the idea that the time that was near was the time of the prophecy's fulfillment. According to Witsit, it was simply the time to read and hear the prophecy that was near. He writes, the place in time is now. It's here right now to read the words and hear the message. This does not imply soon is the time these events are going to happen. So basically, according to Witsit, 
John's writing to seven first century churches, and he's telling them to hurry up and read about things that have nothing whatsoever to do with their current situation. So you have to ask yourself, what would be the point of even reading it in the first place? What would be so urgent and so necessary that they immediately know about things that aren't even going to happen for another 2,000 years? More to the point, why would they even care? How is it even relevant to their current situation? Again, we need to place ourselves in the position of the original audience and ask, what would the words quickly and near mean to me as a first century believer who's receiving this letter from John? Having said that, another thing we'd understand as original readers of the letter who are familiar with the Old Testament is that a term such as shortly is incompatible with a period of even 70 years, much less a thousand or more. We would instantly know that the thousand years of Revelation 20 must not only be symbolic, but symbolic of a much shorter period of time. Speaking during the Babylonian exile, the prophet Jeremiah says, then I, spoke, then I spoke to the priest and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. And in Jeremiah 29, he says, For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Did you catch that? A period of 70 years or more is incompatible with a term such as shortly. It's absolutely imperative to grasp this. According to the prophet Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Events prophesied to happen shortly must, at the very least, the absolute bare minimum be less than 70 years in the future. Unless God suddenly switched gears in the New Testament, it would behoove us to assume his standards have not changed. This being the case then, let me just say, if our understanding of the events of the book of Revelation cannot accommodate a first century fulfillment, I would suggest it's our understanding that needs adjustment, not the text of Scripture. You shouldn't manipulate the time texts because they don't comport with some elaborate scheme you've created. You don't make Scripture fit your system. You make your system fit Scripture. That's how it's supposed to work. In light of Revelation's own time statements and the placement of those time statements within the book itself, I would maintain that the thousand years of Revelation 20 cannot possibly be a literal thousand years. And the idea that the term is symbolic of an even longer period of time only compounds the problem and makes it worse. The very context of of Revelation itself constrains us to understand the term a thousand years 
as hyperbolic of what was, in reality, a much shorter period of time. With regard to this, most of us who take Revelation's own time statements seriously and understand those time texts to include the millennium interpret the thousand years of Revelation 20 as symbolic hyperbole of the 40-year period extending from the time of Yeshua's earthly ministry and his binding of the strong man in A.D. 26 to the outbreak of the Roman Jewish War in A.D. 66. In Revelation 20, the millennium begins with the binding of Satan, and it ends with a war. So the circumstances of A.D. 26 to 66 really do seem to fit the uh, demands of Scripture rather nicely. Having said that, however, those of us who do understand the thousand years in this manner as hyperbole for what was in reality 40 years have come under fire for minimalizing the millennium and diminishing its significance. For example, Peter J. Lightheart writes, the hyperpreterist must reduce the millennium of Revelation 20 to a symbolic description of a 40-year period. Whatever the difficulties of Revelation 20, one clear conclusion is the thousand years symbolizes a significant period of time. When not used literally, the number 1,000 is used consistently to describe things that are literally far more than 1,000. It is nonsense to use the 1,000 years to symbolize a single generation. Pastor Brian Schwartley concurs. The full preterist cannot adequately explain the millennium of Revelation 20. The term 1,000 can be used two ways. It can either be literal or symbolic of a very long period of time. The full preterist chronology explicitly contradicts Scripture. It is impossible. The thousand years of Revelation 20 cannot be explained away. The full preterist view of the millennium is, according to Pastor Schwartley, especially absurd. Um, excuse me. Now, there are... Uh, Plenty more quotes like this, but I think you get the idea. It's simply not acceptable, according to our critics in the religious establishment, to understand the thousand years as symbolic of a much shorter period of time. For them, hyperbole is just not a valid approach. Regardless of what Revelation's own time statements clearly and unequivocally say, so... How do we respond to this? First, I'd like to point out that when scholars don't have an axe to grind with full preterism, they have absolutely no problem whatsoever conceding that the thousand years of Revelation 20 does not automatically indicate a period of long duration in time. Case in point, Dave Mathewson, the Journal of Evangelical Theology, 2001. He, he writes... As most commentators recognize, what is important about the number 1,000 is its symbolic value. It emphasizes not so much the duration of the millennium, but its character. Thus, what is important is not a duration of time. Consequently, 
To conclude the thousand years refers to a literal period of 1,000 years or even to a very long period of indeterminate length is in fact premature. And thanks to Mr. Sullivan here, I found this quote from G.K. Beale. Um, he quoted in one of his books, Beale says the same thing. The thousand years is probably not to connote figuratively a long period of time. Now, I don't want to misrepresent either of these guys. At the end of the day, they're both going to argue that the thousand years is in fact a long period of time. But their point is that it's illegitimate to come to that conclusion automatically based upon the thousand year symbol itself and or the usage of the term a thousand. If this is the case, the hyperbolic view cannot be automatically, automatically ruled out or immediately dismissed. There's nothing inherent about the term a thousand years that necessitates us understanding it as a long duration in time. That might seem odd to us today, but we are far removed from the ancient writers and the literary devices that those writers used. Having said that, I would suggest that not only is the hyperbolic understanding of large numbers scripturally legitimate, having strong precedent in the Old Testament, but this is exactly what John's original audience would have assumed precisely because they were familiar with their Old Testament, as John expects them to be. Our problem is today, we're not. Hyperbolic numbers are literally all over the place in the Hebrew Bible. And um, let's start by going all the way back to the original Exodus event. Exodus 12, 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And verse 38 adds, a mixed multitude went with them, along with flocks, herds, and a very large number of livestock. Eugene Carpenter, in his Exodus commentary, writes, the number of persons involved is huge. So huge, in fact, that it has tried the genius of exegetes for centuries as to how to interpret the figure. 600,000 men on foot, apart from children, women, and men of various other age groups. The huge problem caused by this huge number that Carpenter speaks of can be illustrated many different ways. First and foremost, the book of Numbers tells us that these 600,000 men who left Egypt were from 20 years old and upward and able to go and fight in war. Exodus 13, 18 informs us that they were armed and ready for battle. History informs us that the Egyptian army of this time was comprised of just under 20,000 soldiers. Yet, Exodus 14.10 says the sons of Israel were very afraid of this army, whom they vastly outnumbered. As Cornelius Hoytman points out in his commentary, it is indeed strange that Israel would fear 
Pharaoh's relatively small army, if in fact they had a fighting force of 600,000. The IVP Bible background commentary puts it this way, what would they have to fear? Think about it. If this number, 600,000 fighting men, armed and ready, was literal, Moses should have just told Pharaoh, you know, we're leaving now, and you're welcome to try and stop us. Now, I did a little research, and the most common answer to this is, even though the Hebrew fighting force vastly outnumbered Pharaoh's army, the Hebrews were untrained, inexperienced, and the Egyptians had more advanced, more advanced weapons. Um, here's the thing. The Hebrews outnumbered the, Egyptian, the Egyptians 30 to 1, if the 600,000 figure is to be taken literally. Unless the Egyptians had machine guns, these are just impossible odds. I don't care what kind of weapons they had. And the better commentaries, like Carpenter, they recognize this. They're honest with the data. Second, assuming these 600,000 young, able-bodied men had only one wife, that number doubles to 1,200,000 people total. If each couple only had three children, we need to add an additional 1,800,000 to the 1,200,000 for a grand total of 3 million people at the time of the Exodus, at the very least. Remember, the original 600,000 figure didn't include the elderly and the mixed multitude that went with them. Thus, Nahum Sarna, in his Exodus commentary, states, point blank, the initial number, 600,000, poses, quote, irretractable problems and raises serious questions. Now, just to put this into perspective here, here's an aerial photograph of an actual crowd, well, actually only a portion of an actual crowd of 3 million people attending a Catholic mass held by the Pope in 2013. This took place at Copacabana Beach, and it's considered one of the largest gatherings in human history. Rabbi Michael S. Baron, in making the comparison to the Exodus event, notes that the group listening to the Pope is clustered tightly together for a prayer service. They're not there to march or encamp. A fleeing Israelite nation of that size would include an equivalent number of animals, tents, and supplies. To march, the group would need four times the space compared to the congregation at Copacabana Beach. To encamp, you would need more space than that. Rabbi Baran makes the point that the movie screens and massive speaker systems were insufficient for the gathered masses to see and hear the Pope. <clears throat> um, Baron, Baron sorry, asked, what was the sound system of the nation of Israel in the desert? Two silver trumpets. His point, how could such a sound be heard by three million people with no amplification? So hearing the number three million is one thing. To actually visualize it and think about it and put it into perspective is quite another. 
a third major problem with taking the 600,000 figure literally, yielding a total population of 2 to 3 million, is identified in the Faith Life Study Bible, which says these figures are difficult to reconcile with the archaeological record. This is putting it mildly. As scholar Lester Grabe states, no event the size and extent of the Exodus could have failed to leave significant archaeological remains. According to the book of Numbers, much of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was spent near Kadesh Barnea. This and related sites in Sinai and southern Palestine should yield ample evidence of a large population in this region. He notes, however, that the area has been extensively excavated, and yet we find nothing. The IVP Bible background commentary concurs. If a couple of million people lived in the desert for 40 years, and half of them died there, archaeologists expect we would find at least some traces of them, especially in places like Kadesh Barnea, where they stayed for some, for some time. Uh, a fourth major problem with taking the 600,000 figure literally in this passage would be the simple matter of logistics and the trek they would have taken. Again, this is from the IVP Bible Background Commentary. As it traveled, the line of people would stretch for over 200 miles. Even without animals, children, and the elderly, travelers would not expect to make 20 miles a day. When families and animals move camp, the average would be only 6 miles per day. Whatever the case, the back of the line would be at least a couple of weeks behind the front of the line. This would create serious difficulties in the crossing of the Red Sea, which is said to have been accomplished overnight. So basically what it's saying, the front of the line would have reached Sinai long before the back of the line, you know, even finished crossing the Red Sea. Um, fifth, the problem goes much deeper than the lack of archaeological evidence or the impossibility of three million people making this trek so quickly. According to Numbers 3349, they camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshimoth as far as Abel Shatim in the plains of Moab. A note in the Faith Life Study Bible says that Beth Jeshimoth and Abel Shatim were approximately seven miles from each other. So that would make the total area of the Israelite encampment about 49 square miles. Now, did you catch that? 49 square miles. You have to fit two to three million people, plus all their animals, in 49 square miles in a livable way. The Faith Life Study Bible continues. By comparison, New York City with a population of 8.1 million in 2010, covers 305 square miles. Taking the number 2 to 3 million at face value therefore requires that the Israelite camp had, now get this, a greater population density than New York City without any multi-living accommodations. In other words, they're not building skyscrapers. They're not in high-rise apartments. They're not even building two-story houses. 
They're intense. They're on the ground. All of them. Two to three million people plus all their livestock. New York City has a population density of 27,000 people per square mile. If you do the math, the Israelite encampment in Numbers 33 would yield a population density of about 61,000 people per square mile. The only thing that makes the population density of places like New York City, uh, Paris, and Hong Kong um, even possible today is our modern way of living and the structures that we built. This was not in the picture back then. Finally, add to all of this the fact that Deuteronomy 7.7 informs us that Israel was the least numerous nation in Canaan at the time of the conquest. It lists seven other nations that were larger. Michael Heiser illustrates the problem. Heiser says, This means that if the figures in Exodus are to be taken literally, the total population of these eight nations collectively would have to range from 16 to 24 million people, roughly the 2010 population of Florida or Texas, respectively. The size of Canaan, however, is closer to that of New Jersey than either of these two states. Heiser continues, So take the whole population of Texas and stick it in New Jersey and assume every square foot of it is livable and you can see the problem. New Jersey's about 35 times smaller than Texas. There just isn't enough room, and you need water. So you can't just have every square foot of it occupied. You have cattle. Where are they going to go? Are you riding them the whole time? And can you imagine the human and animal waste? This is before sewage systems. It's, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous to imagine at these numbers, continues Heiser. There literally isn't the square footage, the square mileage in this place we call Canaan to have eight nations, the smallest of which is roughly three million people. So what does all of that mean? What it means is that that original number in Exodus 12, 37, 600,000 fighting men on foot cannot possibly be literal. Whatever the real number was, it was much, much smaller. In fact, Genesis, in Genesis 15, 16, Abraham's told that his descendants would return to the land of Canaan in four generations. John Wenman did the math here. If the birth rate quadruples the population every generation, we should get somewhere between 17 and 18,000 in four generations. And it goes without saying, this is a far cry from three million. It seems clear then that the biblical writer in Exodus 12:37 is using hyperbole. And this isn't the only time it's going to happen in the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, this is just the beginning. Examples abound. Take, for instance, the number of enemies slain in many passages. Judges 12.6 is a good case in point. According to the passage, 42,000 
Ephraimites are slain at the river Jordan for mispronouncing Shibboleth. I'm not entirely sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, so I'm glad I wasn't living back then. Anyway, scholars point out the problem here. The census total for the tribe of Ephraim back in Numbers 26 is only 32,500. Heiser puts it this way. You can't really kill more people than actually exist. David Fouts notes that even if we allow for an increase in the Ephraimite warrior population, you know, between the book of uh, Numbers and Judges, this still does not alleviate the problem of the enormity of the number of those slain. To put what Fouts is saying into perspective, 42,000 slain is almost 10,000 more than the total amount of U.S. combat deaths during the entire Korean War and only about 5,000 less than Vietnam. With this in mind, consider the words of 2 Chronicles 28.6, where Pekah, the son of Ramalia, kills 120,000 in Judah in one day. To get some perspective on this, think about the fact that it took an atomic bomb to kill 80,000 people in one day in Nagasaki. As Raymond Dillard says in his Second Chronicle, in his commentary on Second Chronicles, the numbers of the dead are higher than is historically probable, and get this, would amount to the complete depopulation of the tribe of Judah. Thus, Dillard says, it appears the chronicler intends to be using these large numbers as hyperbole. Again, your better commentaries, they're just honest with the data. Another example, 2 Kings 20.29, we're told that... 1 Kings, thank you. <laughs> yeah, 1 Kings 20.29, although it might have been a typo in here, so it might be 2 Kings, I don't know. Uh, we are told that 7,000 sons of Israel um, killed 100,000 Aramean foot soldiers in one day. Now... If these numbers are literal, the Israelites were pretty tough indeed. And you have to wonder, if 100,000 foot soldiers are no problem for 7,000 fighting Israelites, how on earth could Pharaoh's small army of 20,000 have posed any sort of a threat for the 600,000 fighting Hebrews when they were leaving Egypt back in Exodus? In the ratio in Kings, you have every one Israelite taking down 14 Arameans, but back in Exodus, 30 Israelites couldn't handle one Egyptian? Really? The real problem, however, comes in the next verse. It says an additional 27,000 Arameans were killed when they fled to the city of Ophic and, quote, a wall fell on them. Now, that had to be a really long wall to kill this many people. Those who've done the math point out that we're looking at a structure comparable to the Great Wall of China. Again, we're obviously looking at an embellished, exaggerated, and hyperbolic number. There's simply no archaeological evidence of a wall this large at any time in this area, much less an entire city for a wall like that to surround. You know, as I was um, 
doing the research for this two years ago. <laughs> um, it just, you know, I started thinking it's really easy uh, to gloss over these large numbers and pay lip service to interpreting them literally no matter what. Our problem today is all too often we read the numbers, but we don't take the time to run the numbers. When you do, it literally becomes impossible to take these impossible numbers literally. And perhaps nowhere is this more evident than Solomon's great sacrifice on the day of the dedication of the house of the Lord. Uh, according to 1 Kings 8 and the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And 1 Kings, to me, clearly indicates that this all took place in a single day. So that's a total of 142,000 animals sacrificed in one day. Ed Walsh has a post on the PuritanBoard.com called Some Facts in the Bible Bother Me. Walsh is a civil construction estimator by trade. So, you know, working with numbers and total area, that's what he does for a living. And Walsh puts this into perspective for us. He says the area of Solomon's temple was about a third of an acre. And an acre of land will fill two-thirds of a modern football field. So this is basically what we're looking at if we compare Solomon's temple to a modern football field. Having said that, it would take over a hundred football fields to contain the 142,000 animals waiting to be sacrificed on that day. The sheer amount of animal flesh after the sacrifices is just staggering to even think about. Walsh writes, assuming an average weight for oxen at 1,000 pounds and 200 pounds for sheep, that's 46 million pounds of sacrificed animal flesh. The total blood volume, according to Walsh, would be over 400,000 gallons, which is enough to fill 362 26-foot above-ground pools. Aside from this, think about the time factor involved here. In a 24-hour period, almost two animals would be sacrificed per second. Some scholars seeing the problem here, they try and stretch the whole thing out over an extended period of time. And it's really funny because that extended period of time differs from scholar to scholar. But the longest they come up with, as far as you can go with it, would still require 20 sacrifices a minute for 10 days, for 10 hours a day, for 12 days. So that's as far as you can stretch it, and you still don't even come close to alleviating the problem. Dillard, in his commentary, he interacts with some of this, and he simply concludes by saying, you know, look, the chronicler probably intends these figures as hyperbole. And he simply moves on to the next verse. Dillard does this because it's patently obvious that if we insist on taking these large numbers literally, we have a real problem. And no amount of you know, extended time or complex calculations really resolves the problem. Further exasperating this problem is the way in which the chronicler handles many of these large numbers 
in comparison with the parallel accounts elsewhere in the Bible. All too often, the chronicler's numbers do not match what other biblical writers record. In fact, he he inflates them even further. For example, in 2 Samuel 8, David captures 1,700 horsemen. But in 1 Chronicles 18, it's 7,000 horsemen. In 2 Samuel 10, David kills 700 charioteers. But in 1 Chronicles 19, the number is again 7,000. In 1 Kings 7, Solomon's house can hold 2,000 baths, but in 2 Chronicles, it's 3,000 baths. In 2 Samuel 24, Joab's census has the number of valiant men in Israel at 800,000, but the chronicler puts the number at 1,100,000. What these last examples show is that the literal approach to these large numbers is not an option because it would make the Bible contradict itself in places. So, at this point, we have to ask ourselves, what are the biblical writers doing? Exactly what is going on in these passages? Are they being intentionally deceptive? Well, if that were the case, they wouldn't be very good deceivers, would they? The very people they're writing to are the same people they're writing about. Thus, John Wenham asked this question, who would make up figures which are so patently absurd? And he makes this modern comparison, and it's really good. Would any man in his senses today invent a story of a bus crash in which 16,000 passengers were killed? Just like we all know today that 16,000 people aren't going to die in a bus crash, or you can't fit the entire population of Texas into New Jersey in any sort of realistic or livable way, they surely would have known you can't fit 24 million people into the land of Canaan or 3 million people into an area of only 49 square miles. They would have surely known you can't kill more people than actually exist, that there was no wall big enough to fall on 27,000 men, And it's unlikely that someone could sacrifice 142,000 animals in one day. The ancient people weren't ignorant. They weren't stupid. They could comprehend both numbers and geography. They knew where they lived and how big it was. They were aware of their surroundings. So deliberate deception can't possibly be the aim here because no one in the ancient world would have bought it. Something else must be going on. And indeed, there is. David Fouts has done much research in this area. Oh, that was the John Wenman quote. Okay, sorry about that. That's David Fouts. David Fouts has done much research in this area. And as it turns out, embellishing or exaggerating numbers in this manner was actually a very common device in the ancient world. Mathematical accuracy wasn't the aim at all. And literate readers were actually expecting numeric hyperbole. Fout cites numerous examples where large numbers are employed in a hyperbolic fashion in the epic literature of the ancient world. For example, an Assyrian war text dating around 1300 BC speaks of one of their warriors with only an army of 90 chariots plundering 254,000 men. 
In an Assyrian banquet inscription, the king boasts of bringing over 69,000 people into his palace at once and feeding and clothing them for 10 days. There's an example of an Elamite warrior who conquers 70 cities in one day. Historians recognize this as a clear example of ancient Near Eastern hyperbole. Fouts also gives examples of the same sort of thing we just saw going on in Chronicles, where, you know, one writer gives one total and another writer gives a different total for the same account. He has one where it's 14,000 warriors in one account and over 20,000 in the other. Fouts cites a uh, particular Ugaritic text, the legend of King Kurtu, who is said to have had the mightiest army, numbering over three million. To put this into perspective, in our modern world, China has the largest number of active military personnel, and it's just barely over two million. Ugarit was a Canaanite city. And remember, Canaan is comparable in size to New Jersey. So that's a far cry from the size of China. As Fouts notes, the language of this Ugaritic epic an army numbering three million, is clearly meant to be understood as hyperbole. Probably the most relevant example of numeric hyperbole for our purposes here would be the Sumerian kings list, where various kings are said to have lived impossibly long lives and had impossibly long reigns to the tune of 28,000 years, 36,000 years, 43,000 years, and so on and so forth. Um, these are just a few examples. Fouts has a number of these, and he makes this observation. It is evident from a study of the literature available from the ancient Near East that in royal inscriptional genres, purposeful embellishment of numbers was the norm rather than the exception. And the point of this purposeful embellishment number this purposeful embellishment of numbers, the use of these obviously hyperbolic numbers was to magnify the greatness of the reigning monarch or deity of any given culture. In other words, to exalt the king or god of the people or nation of whom the literature was being written about and for. Fouts concludes that scripture is no different than other ancient literature in that it uses large numbers hyperbolically, and that the ostensible purpose of this usage is to demonstrate the relative magnitude of a given leader or king. The large numbers are simply figures of speech employed to magnify King Yahweh, King David, or others in a theologically driven historical narrative. The hyperbolic use of numbers in the Old Testament, says Fouts, anchors the biblical text to the writing conventions of the time. Fouts' research demonstrates that the biblical writers are using a well-known literary device of the ancient world to draw attention to the might of Yahweh, king of all kings, earthly or divine. Earl Davies concurs. He writes, in attributing such large numbers to the Israelites, the biblical writer is merely, merely observing a well-recognized literary convention, which is widely attested to in the literature of the ancient Near East. There seems to be little doubt 
that the biblical writers were simply following this same literary convention. The use of such grossly inflated numbers in the Old Testament, continues Davies, was to serve a specific theological purpose. That purpose being to signify the miraculous power of Yahweh. Just as other cultures used the exact same literary device to signify the greatness of their king or God or whichever servant of that God the text might be speaking. This is what literate readers of the time were expecting. Consequently, Brian Gadawa writes, it is no heresy or leap of logic to conclude that the Hebrew scribes would write in a similar genre as those around them when they wanted to glorify their king and their God in comparison. In other words, if they wanted to glorify Yahweh and magnify the accomplishments of his people, of course they're going to do it in a way that comports with the literary conventions of their own time. Thus, in 1 Samuel 18.7, after David himself had personally killed just one man, a giant named Goliath, The women of Israel sang what? They sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So maybe we've been familiar with this ancient literary device all along. We've just never stopped to think about it. This being said, I take great exception to the charge that we are somehow reducing or diminishing the millennium by taking a hyperbolic approach to the thousand-year symbol in the book of Revelation. No one would say we're diminishing the magnitude of David's victory over Goliath by conceding the obvious fact that the women are using hyperbole in their song, yet we're somehow diminishing the magnitude of the millennium by suggesting that John just might be using hyperbole here? If hyperbole is the way the biblical writers do it, is it really so absurd to suggest the possibility that John's doing the same thing and he's doing it in order to magnify the accomplishment of Christ and his people in a single generation, especially when the time texts seem to demand this? More to the point, I think it's the other approaches that reduce or diminish the millennium by not recognizing the use of hyperbole. According to amillennialism and modern postmillennialism, it's already taken God 2,000 years, and he still hasn't accomplished what was signified in a thousand-year symbol? Max King put it this way, there's nothing too impressive about that kind of performance. To need 2,000 literal years in order to accomplish a thousand-year symbol or a thousand-year reign is the picture of incompetency, to say the least. I think King makes a great point here. Yahweh is not incompetent. Yeshua is not inept. If the ah-mill or post-mill view is correct, it's already taken twice as long, 2,000 years, to accomplish what is signified in a thousand-year symbol. If mankind perseveres for another thousand years, the symbol will equal 
one-third the actual time being symbolized. If 4,000 years, then one-fourth the time, and so on and so forth. The significance of the symbol diminishes incrementally as time goes on. Think of it this way. If your boss gives you eight hours of work to do and you get it done in less time, that's impressive. If it takes you twice as long or three or four times as long, you're going to be looking for another job. With this in mind, Yeshua gave his disciples a job to do. After his resurrection, he commissioned 11 men saying, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. By the time Paul penned his letter to the Colossians, he could say with confidence, this hope of the gospel has been, past tense, proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The purpose of the thousand years was to bind Satan from deceiving the nations. Yeshua bound the strong man and sent his apostles out to reclaim those nations. In other words, to bring people from all ethnic groups back into the fold. To let the Gentiles know that they too are welcome in Yahweh's family. This was their mission, this was their job, and they crushed it. The magnitude and magnificence of the millennium is not that it's going to take 2,000, 3,000, or even 10,000 years or more to accomplish what was signified in a thousand-year symbol. That's turning the significance of the symbol on its head. Who speaks or thinks this way even today? If I say, Bill has the strength of ten men, Bill's a pretty tough guy, right? If I say, those ten men have the strength of one man, those are ten pretty weak guys. Ten, the larger number, is hyperbolic for one, the smaller number. This is how hyperbole works, not the other way around. If you want to express the fullness, the grandeur, the greatness of something in a non-literal way, you overstate it. You don't understate it. The magnitude of the, the millennium is that it took Yeshua's first century followers less than 40 years to accomplish what, by rights, should have taken a thousand years. So, this approach does not reduce Christ's millennial reign to 40 years. It recognizes the enormity of the task that was accomplished in such a small fraction of time, beginning with a small handful of men. It recognizes the status and importance of the first century believers as they reigned at Christ's side while he was abolishing his enemies and placing them under his feet. It recognizes the strong biblical tradition of hyperbole as a means to magnify and glorify the Lord as he works in and through his people in order to accomplish his purposes. And finally, this approach recognizes the time constraints that the book of Revelation itself places on the prophesied events that it contains. They were close near, and at hand in the first century. They were about to happen shortly and quickly. They were about to occur. Against this backdrop, Yeshua's first century followers completed their mission in record time. 
a thousand-year accomplishment in 40 short years. And that, I would propose, is what the thousand years of Revelation 20 signifies. I would suggest that John is simply repurposing a well-known and ancient rhetorical device. He's using hyperbole to magnify the greatness of Yeshua and the accomplishment of his first century followers, the accomplishment in a single generation. So hopefully this has some practical value in terms of apologetics. You know, critics often use the large numbers in the Old Testament as a stumbling block uh, for accepting the Bible as historically accurate. Um, if, the, if the large numbers, they, they actually anchor the biblical text to the writing conventions of the time. And, um, you know, as such, it, it actually validates its authenticity. So it does the opposite. And um, with respect to the New Testament and the book of Revelation, the time text demand a first century fulfillment. This is something else critics recognize. If John is, in fact, using hyperbole with regard to the thousand years, then the thousand years really poses no problem uh, in this regard with, uh, you know, a first century fulfillment. Um, with that, I guess I will open myself up to abuse and take questions. <laughs> Dan the man. <laughs> Would you say that, that John has already used hyperbole when he talked about the remnant of the Israelites being 144,000? You know, I don't know. I have thought of that, but I'm not sure. But it seems really hard for me to take it as literal because every single tribe has the exact same even number. Do you know what I mean? And I would say, I think John might have already used hyperbole in, I I think it's Revelation 9, somebody can refresh my memory, where it talks about like the two million man army. Well, they're, they're all riding horses. That's China, man. Hey, well, <laughs> 200,000, but here's the thing. They're all riding horses and there's only something like, Gary DeMar says 600, I think, I don't want to misquote him, but way less horses, something like 600,000 horses in the world. So there's not enough horses for the two million man army to ride. So I think, you know, definitely we have some hyperbole going on there. Um, probably with the 144,000 also, but I don't know. <laughs> so he would have already been using that style. Yeah, he would have been, I would think. Yeah, I mean... I'd say at the very least 144,000 symbolic for sure, not literal, probably hyperbole. Um, yeah. Hey, Mike. Hey, oh. Would you? I haven't read Heiser on this, and maybe Pastor Curtis can. How does he take the ages of the early patriarchs? Does he see some numerology or, or hyperbole there, or does he take those literal years for. You know. Hmm. I because you I definitely don't want to misquote him, but I've listened to him, and I get the impression. I'm not saying this is what Heiser, but I get the impression that he thinks hyperbole is going on there. I just when I said the first incidence was the Exodus event, because that's the first incidence I'm sure of. I'm not sure what I think about the long ages, the 900 years and stuff like that. I just don't know. I haven't researched it, but I think Heiser might lean in that direction because he said something like, I can't remember, like you have one genealogy where they don't even list ages. 
Mm. And then in, in the other one, you have all these incredibly long ages. So he's like, the writer's doing something. Right. And he's not even listing the ages of the ungodly ones. He's focusing on these and he's giving them, you know, extravagant ages. So I don't know what I think about that, but it's thought about it, but really can't commit to it. The, the reason I ask that is because the thousand year reference is taken from Psalm 90, I think, two through four. And he's contrasting yeah. the thousand years with man returning to dust as if God's day outlasts, wow. you know, 950, I think, was the oldest. Yeah. Was it 900? So it's kind of a fullness of time, like it's greater yeah. than anything man can ever achieve, whether it's those are symbolic or literal. Boy, that's good. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking, um, when you were saying that, I don't know if you guys have read Vincent's book. Joseph Vincent's book, I quoted it here. I think I messed up the slide, but he he goes, for that, he goes back to Psalm 90. But then he said, Peter's also going back to Jubilees um, with, um, oh, I can't remember what he says, but let me just put a plug in for him. He's very interesting on that, and it's a good follow-up to what Mike was saying. It's like Christ the second Adam Adam lived 930 years. Am I getting this right? And then Christ is the second Adam. You have the 70 years culminating in AD 70. It's just really fantastic stuff. And Vincent brings both Psalm 90 and the quote from Jubilees into the first Peter thing. Gary. Sorry, but um, I'm, all this hyperbole from these writers, I'm wondering were they all fishermen? Or Democrats. <laughs> the point of it is, if, if Fouts and Davies are correct, the ancient person wouldn't be expecting mathematical accuracy. I look at it like this. You know, you see a movie, and it's based on a true story. And you know there's some special effects going in there. And you know they're exaggerating some stuff. For an ancient person, these were their stories. And they're bragging on their god and their king. So you, I look at this device as sort of special effects. And there's really no problem if we realize that mathematical accuracy wasn't the end. You know, any more than we're watching a movie and we realize that a special effect isn't meant to be real. Um, that's sort of how I look at it. I don't know if that sounds good or not. <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Anthony. So, uh, would it be fair to say, uh, even though hyperbole, uh, would sound, I don't want to get off track, but would sound take place as well as sight? Because some places in the Bible it says, describe sound as an abundant number of. of oh, you know, I, I would have to think about that. If it's something that's going on, like maybe a great earthquake or Yahweh's voice thundering, I tend to take that as literal. It's, you know, but I, I don't know. You know, it's a good, it's it's something to think about that I just didn't, pretty much all I thought about is what you heard. I didn't think beyond that. Yeah. So, I know usually if it's to magnify the people and their king and their God, what would, what would possibly be the reasoning for saying there was 600,000 Israelites that were scared of the 20,000 Egyptians. Because that seems to have the, re the reverse effect. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of times, 
Um, if you if you get Fouts' dissertation, and it they're they're both um, his shorter work and his dissertation. Just go to Brian Brian's Godawa.com. He's got them both on there. He said, and he has a nice the dissertation's dense. There's a lot of stuff there. But if you look at his summary stuff, especially in the shorter article, he said one thing that makes scripture unique as opposed to other ancient Near Eastern literature is the scriptural writers will use the hyperbole to the detriment of God's people when they're not obedient and things like that. So it yeah, in the Bible alone, and this is this is unique, it's almost the other literature just wants to make the people look good. But the Bible will actually do the reverse. And even um, the one where you have 120,000 in Judah slain in one day, they're actually, I didn't read through the whole verse. I, like I said, this was two hours. I cut it down to one. I cut some of the stuff out, but they were, they were following King Ahaz in worshiping Baal. So they were worshiping Baal, and then it says 120,000 in Judah in one day. So that's like kind of a case where they weren't doing something good, you know. So in a way, they're still being honest with what was going on. They're not falsely... Oh, no, no. Yeah, they're being honest with it on either side of the coin. If, um, but, you know, I think you know, the biblical writers looked at it like Yahweh's being glorified when his people are being judged because he's being shown to be righteous. Mm-hmm. So they'll use the same, you know, literary devices and techniques, you know, in that way, too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay. <coughs> the other thing that I noticed, uh, most all these numbers in the Old Testament, they're all rounded off. Mm-hmm. They're all <laughs> rounded off. The possibility of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're all rounded off. And um, I, I know. And then, like, I, I, th- I thought about <laughs> maybe there's some... I, I was convinced they're not literal, and I was convinced they're hyperbole, but I was convinced there must be some method to this madness. There must be, you know... So I started doing calculations, let me tell you. Yeah. That's three hours of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> I can't. I have no idea. I, I, I think, honestly, back then... And I think and Dan and I had talked about this before. Some uh, systems, like the Babylonians and stuff, their system was based on six or sixty or something like that. I believe there is a reason for the numbers that they chose, but I just don't think, at our current level of knowledge, we can know. And, but if somebody figures it out, let me know because I tried and I, I have no idea. I have no idea. One more. I'm not sure I can get this right, but. The um, Old Testament, First Testament, there's all this hyperbole in numbers. Yeah. And it's bookended by Revelation with more hyperbole. Does it cast doubt on what's in between on the New Testament? I mean, is, is, is it hyperbole that Christ rose from the dead? I know we can just, you know, signify that. Yeah, I don't, I mean, that's definitely not how I look at it. I just. But I'm saying that others may. The non-believers and all, they can say, well, it's hyperbole here, hyperbole there. The whole thing's just exaggeration, you know? All right, like if an unbeliever asked me what you just asked, my answer would probably be the hyperbole, and this is in the research of like Fouts and Davies and stuff, is dealing specifically with numbers, and when, uh, remember we talked about the Sumerian kings list where you have people reigning like 28,000 years? Historians look at that 
and they say the 28,000 years is definitely hyperbole. But no one doubts the fact that the particular Sumerian king existed or that he reigned. And they don't doubt the historical accuracy of the accounts. They just see the literary device of hyperbole being used with regard to the length of his name, reign or the numbers. So I would say that, you know, it's comparing apples to oranges if the critic tried that. Well, speaking of numbers, how about Jesus feeding the 5,000? I myself take that literally. I believe Jesus fed 5,000. I don't think the apostles are using hyperbole. I, I don't know of anyone that does. But here again, that's a round, round number. Yeah, it is a round number. And that's just men. Yeah. yeah, but you know, probably, probably from Matthew or the Gospel writers. I mean, for sure. If it was a little bit under, or a little bit over five thousand, how on earth? I, I don't think any of them actually took a head count, but you could get a general idea, and they're going to round it off. But I got four thousand. If they were Baptists, they took a head count. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But just for the record, anything like that, like uh, Jesus feeding the five thousand, um, those sort of things. That I myself, I understand that. Just, just literally, Anthony. So it's just initially, we're just really just all in the nutshell, just to magnify the show. That is, yeah. that's what I would say. If if Fouts and Davies, they're going to the Old Testament and they're saying it's to magnify Yahweh and the accomplishment of His people. And like I said, I think that David is slain as tens of thousands is an example that we don't really think about. But you know, wow, there it is. And then, so if Paul's re, or if I'm sorry, John's repurposing that, then it's to magnify Christ and the accomplishment of his first century apostles. Yeah. Which makes sense, knowing that Revelation is the most Hebraic book of the New Testament. I, I know, and he, and and John just he just expects you, you know, he just expects you to know this stuff. Well, he expects the readers to. He doesn't give any explanation. He just, and it, there's a lot of it. It's like bam, 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 bam. And if you connect the dots back to the Old Testament, he's digging deep into all kinds of places and pulling from so many different sources. And it's just like, you better know it. Otherwise, you're not going to get what I'm saying. Um, you know, what's ironic, I just I wanted to share this. When I was working on this, I was sending it to a... Uh, a post-millennial friend of mine, he's a real good guy, but he emails me back and he says that David slaying his tens of thousands isn't a good example because that's a song. And we expect this sort of thing like hyperbole in a song. And he suggested that a better passage would be Psalm 5010 and a cattle on a thousand hills, the classic all-millennial passage well, I just emailed him back and said, that's a song, yeah. <laughs> Psalm 50, like the other, all the other psalms, are songs. They were the original hymn book of the church in Old Testament Israel. So I thought that was kind of funny. Just thought I'd share it with everybody. I'm sorry, buddy, if you're listening out there. I didn't give his name, but... <laughs> but, uh, but, okay, wrap it up here. Oh, what's up? Oh, thank you, Glenn. Thank you very much. Thanks, Glenn. Love you, brother. Love you. Yep. Okay, I think so. Thank you, Bob. That was excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And it was great. It was great to be here. And David.
Thanks for having me. Oh, that was nice to see everybody's faces. Thank you very much. Very good job, Bob. That was that was excellent. Now here's what I'm thinking when I'm listening to that. Let me just warn you. Be careful who you share this with. Now I'm serious because listen, you know dispensationalists. Many of them come from a, a wooden literal background, and you they would hear this and they'd say, "You don't believe the Bible." When if you listen to what he said, he proves that these numbers cannot be literal. And here's the thing. Here, bottom line is audience relevance. What did the people who wrote this and the people who read it understand it to mean? We are so far removed that most people don't even put that into the play. So they just like, no, it says that. That's what it is. God's word is true. And Well, we have to understand. We have to get in the mind of the Israelites all of a sudden, the Bible comes alive and we get things. So it's exciting, but again, you know there, you know those people out there that hold to a wooden literalism, and that it's just, if it says it, that's it, and you're just a heretic if you go anywhere else. But Bob, again, that was an excellent job. That's a good message we can use when people want to know about the millennium. Very good job. That's right. Every, I told you every question you ever had about the millennium would be answered, and he did it. Good job. Good job.